are listening to the State Street Podcast. For more information about State Street Community Church, visit us online at statestreet.tv. thing. Uh, we are grateful to see more and more people back, though we are also grateful for those of you who are still streaming with us online. We know many of you are waiting to get vaccinated, and we're, we're seeing that become more rapid as we, we we're, we're in Indiana. I know we are 50 and above, I think, right now, and they're talking 40s pretty soon. Um, so we hope to see you back once you're vaccinated, if that's what you're waiting for. If you're waiting for uh, children's ministry, we are starting that this weekend at our second service at the 1030 gathering. And so uh, we, if you're waiting for that to happen, don't wait no longer. Just come to our 1030 gathering and uh, we will have full uh, elementary or nursery through elementary kids ministry going for you. And we also need some more volunteers. If you'd like to volunteer for our children's ministry or our tech team on Sunday morning or greeters or Whatever it be, if you want to be more involved here, we'd love to have you be more involved. And uh, just reach out to Pastor Becky or myself or fill out a Connect card on your uh, State Street mobile app. And we'd be happy to connect you to either uh, the ministry leader of that ministry or, um, uh, you know, work with you to find a a good fit for you somewhere in the church. Uh, One of the best ways to get to know people here, and as, you know, some of you are new and things like that. One of the best ways to get to know people here is to serve uh, and to, to participate in, in seeing some of the same people each time you, you serve and, and you get to know them a little bit better. It's a little different, obviously, right now with the pandemic and, and as it's waning and things like this, we'll hope to do a little bit more community events, but it's, it's been hard over the last year to get to know people better, obviously. But we are hoping that in this next year, um, in 2021, we will be able to uh, remedy that a little bit by by having more community events. As I announced last week, um, we are working on hopefully getting that pavilion over at the Bright Street Green Space done this uh, this early in the summer, by, by early summer, so that we can have monthly events over there. And it'd be great to have it outside and, and just enjoy the weather together, um, enjoy the time together, have lunch together, these kind of things. So. Um, obviously, we still have to do some fundraising for that. Um, we are going to, I don't know if you know this, but if you're looking to take your GameStop money and invest it into something else, lumber is the one is the thing you want to invest in right now. Their lumber is ridiculous, the price of lumber. Uh, Neil got a quote this week for lumber for the pavilion, and Neil, I mean, uh, it would probably be what? Uh, twice as much as it was maybe a year ago. Um, we're talking like $45,000 to $90,000 in a year. And, and no different, just lumber. And so uh, if you see Neil outside your house cutting down trees into small little boards, actually, no, I know he's not going to do that. So don't worry about it. If you see that, call me because there's something wrong. Um, but we, we, we're still raising some funds for that because of the uh, increased costs and stuff like that. But we hope to have that done 
I, I just think it'd be great to be outside together, to be in that space together. It is such a special, special space uh, that we're going to give to the community here. Now, as is our custom each week, we pray for something going on in the world. And um, it might be a, an issue that's, you know, facing us here locally. It might be a, an issue that's not facing us, but we want to be aware of it. We just think it's important to, to pray and to, to know what's happening around the world, uh, not to form, you know, political boundaries or anything, because he, here's, here's where I'm at. As I've, I've, I've dealt with a, a political talk show that I host and things like this is, you know, we can have very differing opinions on how to solve problems, because I honestly don't think there's always one way to solve a problem. But we do want to at least be aware of the same problems, right? It helps none of us to say, well, that's a problem. Another group say, this isn't a problem. Another group say, this is a problem. No, I think we have to be aware of the problems. And then we could talk and, and pray and, and think about what's the best way to solve these problems together um, as people, as, as humans, as Americans, as Christians. So uh, today, though, we, I want to pray for something specific. I saw a report about the, the border to the south. And uh, immigration has always been a big deal to me. Obviously, you know, uh, my wife turns 40 today, but she, she is an immigrant. Uh, and she became a citizen just a couple years ago. But uh, the journey to become an immigrant, and or the journey to become a citizen and legal resident, all these kind of things has always uh, kind of just enlightened my heart a little bit about what's happening there. But I also know that my family, the, the Lauxes, came to America 300 years ago in 1710, fleeing religious and political persecution because of their faith. And we've been here for 300 years, and uh, we were in a Baptist, which essentially means you can fight us, but we're not going to fight you back. Um, but we ended up getting to America and building homes here and, and making a way here. And I am a product of people that took a hard route to get here, but uh, they helped build this country and things like this. And so uh, I don't know the solution to our immigration problem. I really don't. Uh, you know, people like open borders. I, 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 none of it makes sense to me, honestly. None of it feels right to me. I don't know what the solution is. I know that there's problems, though. So instead of thinking about, well, this is the solutions, why don't we just pray for the problem? And why don't we pray for those who are actually participating in solving the problem to, to maybe have wisdom, to have uh, compassion, and to do what's the, the, the smartest, wisest thing for our nation and for other nations to do. So we're going to pray for the 60,000 asylum seekers on the border right now, most of them from Central America, many of them from countries that are in political upheaval. And we want to pray for them. Uh, I, I pray that they're and pray for their countries, that they aren't in political upheaval, that they can find uh, a home and a safe home and a peaceful home, and that their journeys um, will, will find uh, fulfillment in a hopeful future. So will you pray with me today? Jesus, we know that you are with every traveler who leaves home to find a stable, safe place to live. We continue to pray for policies that humanize and dignify all those on this journey. We continue to pray for safety inside these immigration and refugee camps. We continue to pray for peace and health in homelands, in countries 
so that they don't have to leave the family and land that they love if they don't want to. We pray for peace. But when they do, we pray that your people rise up to be your love to all who enter our country with need, for all who come wanting the same dreams that our ancestors built. We pray for wisdom as this situation is tremendously complex. And we know that you'll give it if we seek it. Lord, have mercy. Amen. So um, we're in a series on Lent, and it's called The Heart Matters. Okay? And it's, it's talking about this idea that, you know, our desires, who you are, um, matters. I was just talking to my daughter uh, the other day, and she said, Dad, how do, you, how do we know that we are not just, you know, chemical and electrostimulated impulses that make us feel the way we feel? And how do we know that we're not just, you know, these things in our brain that, that elicit emotion and that our emotions are real and not just the product of, you know, these things that are coming together in our brains that are making us feel this way. And she said, you know, how, how do we know that there's a, a spirit and a soul and not just the physical world? And I said to her, why are you asking me? <laughs> and we talked about it. And I said, well, I think there's something more to this world, more than just our physical, chemical, atomic reality. And so we're talking about what that moreness consists of. The heart matters. Our desires matter. Our motivations matter. What, what we think about people matters. How, how we deal with the world around us matters. How we, how we make sense of the, the chemical and electrostimulation in our brains that some of us can't always control, but what we do with it does matter. The heart matters. What you want in this world matters. What you desire in this world matters. What you want to see happen in this world matters. See, Lent is often described as this uh, time of preparation, right? It's a 40 days before Easter, and it's this opportunity for us to, to dive deeper in our faith with God. It's a time that starts with reflecting on our own mortality, that starts on Ash Wednesday, as we had a virtual Ash Wednesday service, and, and we ask these questions over these next 40 days plus Sundays. Are we living the ways we want to, or are we making the choices that are the wisest? Now, you would argue, or you could argue, and you probably should argue, that we should ask these things every day. But the reality is we don't. We get comfortable. Um, the mundane hits in. So we set a time in our calendar, in our life, in our normal rhythm, to ask these questions. Are we living the ways we want to? Are we making the choices that are the wisest? In this series, the heart matters. That's what we're asking. Really, it comes down to that. Are, are we doing the things that we want to do, that we believe is creating a world that we want to live in, that worships Christ, that, that is, is uh, using the wisdom of Christ for love and justice? And the heart matters. So usually when I use the word currency, you might think of this idea that currency is money, right? And 
Currency is this thing that you obtain, you get money, you earn, you've earned it or you inherited it or somebody gave it to you, and then you get to trade that, that thing for goods and services. The, the literal definition of currency is something that is in circulation as a medium of exchange. It is something that you have that you get to exchange for something else, right? It could be dollars and cents. It could be Bitcoin. I don't know what that is, but I hear people know what it is. I've tried to get it. I don't understand it. I own some Bitcoin, still don't understand what it is. But currency is something that is in circulation as a medium of exchange. You have something, you, you, it's yours, and you are going to use that something in exchange for something else. I want this thing at the store, I'm going to take my money, I'm going to give over my money so that I get the thing that I want. When you give over your money, you only have so much of it, you no longer have that money anymore. It is somebody else's. You've used it. You've given it away. It is no longer yours anymore. That's currency. Where we mistake currency is that we think it is only money, that it is only dollars and cents, that we only own and earn those things. Well, currency can be lots of things. Money is a currency. But so is time. Every day you wake up and you have 24 hours. You have 24 hours to sleep, to eat, to work, to enjoy, to laugh, to manage, to fix. And then when 24 hours is done, you don't get to exchange that time for more time. You get a whole new set of 24 hours. But every day, just like currency, you get $24 bills, right? And each one of those $24 bills represents an hour, and you get to use that hour in a way sometimes that you want to use it, and sometimes the ways you don't. But that's your currency for the day, your time. And you decide what you're going to spend that time on, how you're going to exchange that currency for certain things. Maybe you're going to use your time and exchange it for work and get paid for the labor that you do so that you have a different form of currency, money. Maybe you're going to invest in that currency with your friends or your family so that you can exchange it for better relationships with the people that you love. Maybe you're going to watch a show or a movie that you really enjoy and exchange that currency for enjoyment and joy and laughter. Maybe you're going to exchange that currency for preparing a meal for people that you love or people you only like. Currency. Time is a currency. Your energy is a currency. You only have so much energy in a day. Only so much. Another currency is emotional capacity. If you are the type of person that takes in and takes in and takes in, it's kind of like this idea, you've heard it before, of the starving baker, right? The starving baker is the baker that bakes and bakes and bakes and bakes and never stops to eat themselves. They, they give and give and give. And they, what they're giving is their, their emotional capacity to take in, right? I, I want to listen to your problems. I, I want to help you. Therapists typically have a 
fairly substantial emotional capacity that they can take in a lot. But every therapist I know also says they only have so much of that currency. Only so much. There comes a point where you, you have just so little capacity left, and then what happens is other things in your life start to suffer. Emotional capacity is a currency. There's other currencies as well. In this Lent, we're, we're thinking about what are the currencies of our lives and how are we using them? Again, one of the things that is easiest to think, because there is a physicalness to it, is money, right? Dollars and cents. You exchange it, you get something in return. You see it. Sometimes with our time, we don't always see that we're exchanging something and we're getting something in return, especially because the thing that we're exchanging and getting something in return for isn't always like val that valuable to us. I just spent five hours watching Netflix. What did I get in return? Nothing, really. Maybe some enjoyment, maybe some laughs, but really nothing. I just spent, you know, uh, two hours playing a game on my phone. What did I get in return? Nothing, really. I got some enjoyment and I wasted some time. But that's how I spent that currency. And you only have so much of it. I think that's the hardest thing for younger people to understand is you only have so much currency. It's hard sometimes for our kids to understand that there's only so much money, right? Well, why don't we get this? I remember, so we've got friends that do make more money than my wife and I and have made more money. And my kids would often ask, well, why don't, why don't, why don't we buy that? Well, we, the currency conversation then comes up, right? Well, we don't make as much money. We don't have as much money. And the things that we have are good things. We like our things. It's okay to not have those things. There's only so much currency, right? Well, why don't we go on vacation here? Well, we don't have the money to go on that vacation. Currency. There's only so much of it. And I, I want to talk today a little bit about how we're investing it, specifically our time as currency. You only have so much time to invest. Every day, you start over with a full bank of 24 hours. How are you investing your time? Have you ever had somebody come up to you, maybe a coworker, maybe it's just you know a friend or something, uh, maybe it's at church. This this happens on Sunday morning, and I'm usually like you know running around ragged trying to get some things going. And somebody will come up and they'll say, hey, do you have a minute? And my response is always in my head, no. I'm busy. Right? I'm busy. I do have a minute. But typically, they're not asking for a minute. They're asking for longer than that. Right? And so I, I feel obligated to give them the currency that I own my time. But I also feel this tension of, I'm busy. I'm busy. And the reality is, is, I am busy. You're busy. Many of us have things going on. And what we end up doing is we build so much into our daily lives, and we, we build so much stuff. We use our currency in, in such ways that we're so busy that whenever anybody asks us, do you have a minute? Can I have a minute? You have some time. Our initial response, whether we, we verbalize it or not, is I'm busy. I'm busy. Some of us view busyness as the ultimate form of virtue, right? If you're not busy, 
then your life must be meaningless. Others of us are afraid not to be busy. Brené Brown says that busyness can sometimes be used as a form of numbing behavior to armor against vulnerability. That hit me. Why are you busy? Well, I'm trying to ignore the things that I don't want to deal with on the inside. There's some stuff in there. And if I'm busy enough, I don't have to deal with it. Some of us are addicted to being busy. We don't know what to do. Here's, here's something I've noticed about myself. Um, most hours of the day, you'll find, you'll find me with a gadget. I've got a computer, typically. Um, I'm watching TV, and I'm working, or I'm, I'm doing you know, silly stuff, like you know, um, database management, nothing that's that important. The other day, I realized that I have not watched a movie without a gadget in front of me in years. And I wanted to do it the other day. I wanted to watch a movie without a phone, without a computer, and I couldn't do it. It was too painful. It was too much. I felt bored. Because I'm so used to and so addicted to being busy and to having so many stimuli that I don't know what to do when my attention needs to be on just one or two things. Some of us are just addicted to being busy. And we don't know how to deal with our time and our life if we don't have this sense of busyness. Brene Brown says, we are a culture of people who've bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. I don't know if that's true for everyone. I do think that's true for a lot of us. If we stay busy enough, if we do enough things, if we focus on the next thing that we're going to do, and that doesn't always mean like daily busyness. It's talking about, hey, um, as soon as you get done with a vacation, you're planning the next vacation. As soon as you get this thing, you're planning this next thing. And your mind always has to be thinking about something in the future because thinking about the now is too painful. If you think about the now, you have to think about the relationships that need fixed. If you think about the now, you have to think about the marriage that isn't perfect. If you think about the now, you have to think about the job that you don't love. If you think about the now, then you have to think about all the things that you've wanted to say to people that you haven't because you haven't felt brave enough or bold enough to say it. If you think about the now, you have to think about the, the chaos that you left, the relationship that you know should be fixed, but it's been so long that you don't know what to say now. So we keep busy. We keep busy. We don't want to think about our failing bodies. We don't want to think about our emotionally strained relationships. We don't want to think about our anxiety-induced planning. We just keep busy. We are a culture of people who bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. The reality is, it always does. There's a constant battle within us for how we are going to use the currencies we have. And time is one of the most valuable currencies. There is only so much of it. Not only in today, there's only so much of it in your life. Everyone in this room, without being too morbid, you will very likely die. 
unless they somehow figure out a way for you to live forever, which I don't think they are, your body will give out eventually, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Morbid, right? But true. So that means if there is a beginning and if there is an end to this earthly body that you are living in, with this time construct that you have, and there is a line that you're living, there's a start where you were born, October 10th, 1981 for me, there is an ending somewhere for me. Hopefully long, long, long. I, I, I enjoy my life. I love my family. I, I'm not in any hurry to get out of here. Everyone's like, well, don't you want to meet Jesus? Well, I do. Down the road. I can meet Jesus here, too. I'm okay. Eventually, though, it will catch up. There's only so much currency in your life. There's only so much time in your life. Would you say your life is busy? Would you say it's manageable? Maybe you're one that would say, no, my life is too slow. I don't have enough. How does that affect the time you spend with God? Do you ever say you're too busy to pray? Do you ever say, I'm just too busy to read my scriptures? I'm too busy to think and pray about what's going on. Do you, do you ever think, I'm forming opinions in the midst of my busyness without actually putting them through any kind of logical paradigm to think whether or not I really believe what I believe? Because I'm too busy, so I just adopt what somebody else told me. Uh, in the scriptures, there's this idea of idolatry. And we don't talk a lot about idolatry. I mean, we do, but this form of idolatry, usually what we think of is, right, it's like um, the Old Testament, they build a golden statue to somebody they, that we worship this statue and instead of God. And we say, well, we don't do that, right? We don't worship golden statues, golden calves. We don't, we don't worship those things. But idolatry is just as alive today as it was in the Old and New Testament times. Idolatry is just anything that you put in place of God. You make an idol of. You, you, you put them as a priority. And it doesn't always have to be anything physical. It could be something um, like your time. It could be your money. It could be um, your uh, prestige in this life. Anything that you're wanting to put in place of God. In 1 Kings, there's this story, and, and I love this idea of thinking about idolatry in this way. Uh, it says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to uh, sorry, uh, the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord. So idolatry is very interconnected with our allegiance. Reboam, uh, king of Judah, they will kill me and return to king Reboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It wasn't those things that brought them up out of Egypt, but here, look at this, focus on this. Here are your gods. 
One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Here are your gods, they shrieked. Right? We don't have like a golden calf or like a golden statue of me anywhere, right? Where people are like, oh, I'm going to worship that. More probably like a golden statue of Neil. Um, nobody would look at me, a golden statue, and be like, eh, I think we could have left that at bronze. Um, but what we do have are things in our culture that is accepted to understand that, the, that we can place them in priority over the kingdom of God. What is that? Our time. Right? Our time. Well, you're busy. Our culture admires busyness. We find it important if you're too busy, right? Oh, you must be really important. You've got all these commitments. Yeah, I just, I can't do the things that I want. I can't serve. I can't, I can't pray. I, I don't have all the time to, to help my family understand Christ. I'm just busy. I got all these other things. Our, our money, right? Our, our, our currencies. Now, here's the thing is, at State Street, I, I've made a very conscious effort to be careful about how we talk about money. Not because we don't need money. We do but because I have also seen the church go the opposite way and manipulate and guilt and shame people for not giving enough. What I don't want to do is, is, is get guilt or shame you into anything. If you want to use your time in the way you're using your time, you use your time. If you want to use your money in the way that you use your, you use your money. What we hope to do here is have an, a, a, an ongoing conversation of, is it the wisest way to do it? Is this helping us connect to God? Is it helping us connect to each other and to, to the world around us? If not, Christ has shown us a better way. So in the way that we look at currency with our finances, here's your God. It's what you focus on. It's what you think about, having more of it. Being able to get that next best thing. Here's your time. You're, some of us make an idol of our family. Some of us, because oftentimes idols are things that are inherently good. But what we do is we take a good thing and we put it above God. And it becomes an idol. Idolatry. Here are your gods, Israel. Here are your gods. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, said to the people, is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Here are your gods. What do you think would be the gods of our culture today? What, what are they? Is it being right? Is it having the right political or spiritual opinions? Is it um, going to the right church? Is it feeling superior than others? Is it your time? Is it your money? Is it your family? What is it that you're placing in priority above God? Why are idols so harmful? Why does the scripture spend so much time in this idea of idols? Do you remember um, in uh, the New Testament when Gentiles are coming into the church and Paul goes to Jerusalem, which is kind of the center, right? The center of where the church, it's the Washington, D.C. of the early church. It's where all the important figures are, right? And 
the Apostle Paul, who's a missionary to other areas of the, the day, you know, it's like he goes to Indiana and he meets these Hoosiers that are, you know, a little bit out there, but for some reason they're connecting with Christ. And he comes back to the main center place and he says, hey, here I've seen signs and wonders in these people. And one of the things that uh, Jerusalem Christians tell these uh, Gentile Christians to do, do not meet do not eat meat sacrificed to what? Idols. Idols. This is not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. And sometimes it was a physical representation of a god, Baal or something like that. And sometimes it's, it's a thing. It's an idea that we've placed above God. And why are they so harmful? Why does the scripture warn us against them so much? It's not just to be, you know, dictatorial, or it's not just to be something that, you know, we need to feel guilty about. It's because they take our attention away from what matters. Idols tend to take our attention away from what really matters in this world. When you're only focused on your own time and how you use your own time and having your own time reflect what you want, it will take away from giving your time to what matters. You will only be concerned with conserving as much of it instead of giving it away because you've made an idol of it. Same with money. The same with attention. They take our attention away from what matters. And the scriptures caution, hey, listen, when you focus on this thing here, you will lose sight of this thing. You can only look at one of two, you can only go one or two ways. And if you focus on this as if it's godlike, and we won't verbalize that, we won't articulate it that way, but you've placed it in such a priority in your life, you will not see the work of God over here. They take our attention away from what matters. Think about this. I know for me, um, I often say I'm busy, and, and I am. I, I genuinely think I've I got lots of stuff going on, and there's reasons for that that I think a well-paid therapist needs to help me with. But, you know, when I spend time doing stuff that's good for the community, for the church, for the PAC Center, I do spend time away from my family. I can only be in one place at one time. Sometimes I've done enough for the church. I've done enough for the community. I've done enough for the PAC Center. I've done enough, and I'm still trying to be busy. Why? Because it's, busyness has become an idol for me. Doing more and more and more has become an idol. And what's happened then is it's taken my attention away from what truly matters is I only have so many years with my kids. I only have so much time with my wife. And every minute I spend doing this other thing, every minute I spend focused on that, and you, these are good things, I ultimately do not do this thing over here. So when you make an idol of something, it can take your attention away from what matters. Secondly, what we believe is important can disappoint us. When we say, okay, money is what's important, um, so many people, so many people have acquired 
a, a, a significant amounts of money. And, and I will tell you this, my wife and I make more money now than we did when we got married, and it's better. I don't want to go back to the point where we were both making $9 an hour, okay? I'm not like, you know, dreaming about the days when we didn't have any money. But I have seen people, and I've felt the impulse myself to say, well, if this much more money makes me this much more happy, how about I get that much more money because maybe I'll be that much more happy? Yes. I know people with lots of money that are tremendously depressed, unfulfilled, and saddened because the thing that they thought would bring them happiness no longer does. What we believe is important can disappoint us. You get to the mountain, you see what's around, and you think, this is all there is? The scriptures remind us, hey, hey, don't forget there's only one true God, and that one true God does not disappoint. And when you place something above God, that thing, that idea, that person, that concept, will only disappoint you. See, over and over again, the church has been reminded that Christ is better than any idol we want to build. Christ is better. Sometimes we want something physical to see, to touch. We don't always get that, though I think uh, Christ is present in very real and tangible and even physical ways if we, we look for Christ. But let's be honest, Christ is not the same as a person necessarily standing right next to you. You don't have the physicalness of touching them or the currency of money of touching the dollar bills or of your time looking at the clock and seeing that it's slipping away. Christ is better than idols. And she writes, says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. Ooh, hear that again. You become like what you worship. If you worship time, if you worship money, you become greedy. If you, if you worship these things and you focus on these things, you might become selfish. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. It was on to say, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than as human beings. If you ever had lost a friend to the path of trying to build businesses and your relationship now is contingent on them wanting to sell you something, and it saddens you because what's now been a decent and good friendship has only now become a moment of currency, a potential sale. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Sex can become an idol. 
Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns because they're only using you or friends with you by what you will give them. These are many, these and many other forms of idolatry combined in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Jesus, let's talk about Jesus. So Jesus um, is asked by um, uh, a group of Pharisees, hey, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? Like for somebody to do, to live. Narrow it down the focus for me. What is important in this world? And Jesus does not give, hey, well, I've written a 250-page book. Here's all the things that are important. Make sure you do every one of them. Actually, what I love about Jesus is he almost always strips things down to the most basic elemental focus of what you and I need to do, and then we're allowed to kind of wrestle within that construct and paradigm, right? So when Jesus says, you ought to love your neighbor, he doesn't usually say, this is all the ways that you have to love your neighbor. He invites you to love your neighbor. He invites you into that struggle. He, he invites you into the, the, the concept of virtue, what is forgiveness, what is mercy, what is compassion, but then also gives you the freedom to figure some of that out. But Jesus is asked, he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, this is Jesus says to this question uh, asker, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The whole essence of your being should be loving God. With all your time, with all your money, with all your strength, with all your energy, with all your desires, should be in, in, in the uh, pursuit of loving God. But not just that. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving others. Of these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. The Shema. So there's this ancient prayer in Deuteronomy called the Shema. And Jesus just quoted it there without you knowing. And, and oftentimes a, a, a Jewish person will wake up every day and pray the Shema. And it starts, Shema Yisrael, which means, hear, O Israel. Like, hear, O Israel. This is what God wants from you. And Jesus just quoted it there by saying, you shall love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the Shema. That is the ancient prayer that every Jewish person would have prayed in Jesus' day at the beginning of the day and right before they went to bed. Help me love the Lord my God with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my being, with all my time, with all my energy, with all my, my finances. Help me reflect the love of God that is in the image of God within me out to the world around me. Lent is all about time. It's a, set of, it's a certain time of the year for a certain period of time. It's a reminder that we only have so much time in this world. From dust we come, to dust we will return. So how should we look at our time? How can we be people that love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our strength? How do we look at the currencies we have and, and also uh, kind of live within the paradigm of loving God and loving our neighbors? But what if 
What if we, it starts by shifting our life away from being reactionary with the things that we have? Oh, we have more money. What should we do with this? We have more time. What should we do with this? And move to being deliberate. I told you this before, that my grandpa Lauch, um, a much better Christian than I ever probably will be, uh, woke up every morning, and he would say prayers. I wake up every morning and go, oh, it's the morning. He woke up every morning at like four. Of course, he went to bed at like six at night, so let's not idolize him too much. But, um, and he lived in a non-Netflix world, okay? Um, but he would wake up. My dad can affirm, he woke up every morning, right? And he'd say his prayers every morning. He'd have a list. He would carry, as his memory got a little worse, he would carry it here, uh, a, a little, uh, like, little pocket thing. If he didn't have a, a shirt like that, he would put it in his uh, uh, pants pocket. But he'd always have a little thing, and he'd, he'd say his prayers. But, you know, that takes time. That takes time. That takes energy. That takes deliberation. That, that takes, I'm every day I'm going to do that. Because you can find reasons not to do that. I can tell you one of the best reasons not to do that is I like to sleep. But what if we shifted our life away from being reactionary and moved it to being more deliberate? Okay, I have this much currency. I understand I only have this much currency of my time, of my money, and I want to invest it wisely. I want to invest it in the things that I find valuable which means I might have to say no to some things to say yes to other things. Sometimes I have to say no to good things to say yes to better things. What I'm learning is in this pursuit of, of being more deliberate, we have to learn to focus on what's essential. What is essential? What is essential for you to spend money on? What is essential for you to spend your time on? What do you have to do? Now, what do you want to do? Now, what do you like to do? But narrowing your, your schedule, your money, what is essential for you to do? And then we, we kind of prioritize quality over quantity. Are you getting returns out of this thing? Because we can be busy all day long and look and say, well, that really didn't manifest itself in much. We ask these questions here at church. Again, we can be busy with the amount of people we feed, with the amount of kids we have in our children's ministry, but we want to prioritize quality over quantity. Is, is it actually making a difference? Is the things that we're spending our money on actually making a difference? Is the things that we're using our time on actually making a difference? Prioritize quality over just quantity. You only have so much of it. You only have so much of it. Thirdly, emphasize achieving and not doing. This is, this is where I'm at right now, is thinking at my life of what I want to see. I'm going to be 40 this year. My wife turns 40 today. She is a cougar. Um, she is seven months older than me. Um, but I'm going to be 40 this year, which really makes my dad old, because he's youngest son is 40 years old. Think about that. Um, but I'm going to be 40 this year. I only have so much time left. I'm young. I, I don't think I'm you know, ancient, though my, gray hair, my, my increasingly gray hair says otherwise. But I do only have so much time. And there are things I want to see in this world. There are things I want to build in this world. There are things I want my family to know, not just because I said it, because I showed it to them. 
There are things and goals that I have that matter to me. And I had to spend time thinking of what those are. I had to align them, I think, with the kingdom of God. And now where I'm trying to point my life to is achieving these kingdom-minded goals rather than just doing stuff. I only have so much time. I only have so much money. I only have so much emotional currency. I only have so much me. And if I want to see these things happen, if I want my kids to know that their dad loves them, how many times have parents loved their kids but their kids not felt it? How many times have you wanted your kids to understand that you love them, you cherish them, but instead of achieving that goal, of working to figure that out, how they receive love, how you should show love, we were just busy in doing. We'll end with Fulton Sheen quote here. If you do not worship God, you worship something. And nine times out of ten, it'll be yourself. You have a duty to worship God, not because he will be imperfect and unhappy if you do not. Mind you, again, our faith is not to appease a God that's mad at us. That is not our faith. God loves you. But we do this because you will be imperfect and unhappy by not prioritizing these things, by not focusing on the right things. God invites you, doesn't force you, doesn't coerce you to find the way of life. We are starkly warned in Scripture not to hold any idols above God. But there's a reason God saw fit to reach out to humanity through the life of Christ. Because we long for something we can touch, to see, to identify with. But that is also transcendent, bigger than life. And that's what Christ offers all of us. And so in this meal, this this physical meal where we receive the body and blood of Jesus, we give thanks for the physical representation of God's love for us, of God giving his body and his blood for the sake of humanity, of showing that it's better to give than to receive. And we thank God for the gift that is Jesus, for the demonstration of what life is like in the kingdom. But we also repent because we don't always choose the right ways. And we're not met with a vengeful, angry God We're always met with open arms and invitation to find better life. So may we do that today as a church community, whether you're at home or in person here. May we repent, reflect, and reorient our lives to the paths of Christ. Will you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. Amen. 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 Our Father in heaven.